Welcome back to another episode of World History Class with Mr. Lutz, where today we're going to focus on the time in between World War I and World War II that has been creatively titled by myself and so many others, the interwar years. So there's potentially so many different things to talk about at such an intense level of depth. And I think this is really where I hope the strong suit of this podcast is going to be which is keeping you focused on the key concepts rather than going off onto tangents that I just simply seem to enjoy more than others. Um, so I'm going to try to keep keep holding fast to the key concepts throughout this episode. And I also want to flip the script a tiny bit today by talking about complicating the narrative first, then moving on to key concept connections, and then getting into the document and focus as well as the recommendations. So I think it will make sense as to why I'm doing this. So let's begin. So it makes sense to start this episode with complicating the narrative because I want to focus on trying to globalize the Great Depression. So I want you to see that the Great Depression resulted from far more than just a bad week on the stock market. And it caused a lot more than just economic distress in America. And hopefully you see this whole episode in some sense as the global causes and effects of the Great Depression, because I think much of the anxiety of this era stems from the economic distress that was caused by the Great Depression. So World War I created a sense of uncertainty regarding the human condition that was only reinforced by Einstein's theory of relativity, which ushered in an era of new knowledge that really stretched mankind's ability to comprehend its own condition. This uncertainty manifested itself in the art of the period, as well with a new movement called Dadaism that scoffed at the beliefs and values that had driven the world into such a costly war you should definitely check out Marcel Duchamp's piece known as Fountain, which is literally a urinal he purchased from a plumbing store, turned on its side, signed it, and submitted it as art into a new exhibition. This, in my opinion, is a great example of this movement because it was meant to really call into question how we as a society understood what truth was. And I'm not sure that there's anything better than submitting a urinal to an art show to raise the question of exactly what is art. Anyway, the global economy had begun to get back onto its feet entering the mid-1920s, and it seemed like normalcy was returning. However, in the latter part of the decade, the writing was on the wall that economic strain was forthcoming, though few could have predicted the disaster that would ensue. Germany had been forced to pay reparations totaling approximately $32 billion to the victorious Allied powers, and eventually these payments were being financed by American investors. What made this plan rather strange was that once the money was paid by Germany to Britain and France, it was usually going back to the United States because the Allies were indebted to the Americans who had helped supply their war effort. Many argued it would be wise for the Americans to just cancel some or all of the Allied war debt, but this did not happen. Raw materials and agricultural supplies were now at levels of overproduction and this led to the collapse of their prices on the global market. 
Synthetic materials were becoming more popular, and their European farmers got back on their feet and helped add supply to a market that had been sustained during the war by farms in the Americas and Australia. Farmers were making less money, therefore purchasing fewer manufactured goods, and ultimately leading to negative effects in industry. These issues led to American investors beginning to recall the loans they had been given to Germany in 1928. The roots of the Great Depression were forming and would only strengthen from this point on for the next several years. In late October 1929, the U.S. stock market crashed. Investors, sent into a state of panic, began rapidly selling their investments, and eventually this played out in a tumble-down effect on businesses, wages, and jobs. Americans who had their money saved in banks suddenly rushed to withdraw their money, as these banks did not necessarily have money in reserve to cover all deposits. And banks began collapsing left and right in the early 1930s, not to mention loans were no longer being distributed as they once were. Since American jobs and incomes were no longer secure and its financiers could no longer dole out the loans it once had, this meant a tremendously negative impact for the global economy. Even more American loans were being recalled from Germany and Austria, and by 1932, Germany had an unemployment level of 35% and its industrial output collapsed by half. This resulted in a shockwave effect throughout Europe because the entire continent moved as Germany moved. The Japanese suffered as well due to American cutbacks in the purchasing of export goods, leading to declines in industrial output in Japan. Seeing the global domino effect of economic destruction, nations began to develop policies that would help them become more self-sufficient. Economies in Latin America, Asia, and Africa were also crushed as they often relied upon the export of a few types of raw materials in mass quantities. With the slowdown of global manufacturing, these raw materials were not in demand as they had been in the past. To encourage more domestic production and consumption of domestic goods, protective tariffs began to emerge, meaning nations taxed foreign imports at a higher rate in order to discourage the sale of these goods. Other nations reacted to tariffs on their goods by enacting reactionary tariffs. This meant that international trade was crushed by all of this economic nationalism. This economic strain took its toll on the people as they now face desperate times. Things that you and I take for granted, like food and shelter, are no longer as secure for many as they were in the past. Less children were being born, suicide rates were going up, and class divisions intensified. As these issues mounted, economists began to rethink the workings of capitalism. John Maynard Keynes began to devise theories that were more critical of the laissez-faire principles of Adam Smith. He believed that the Depression's problems could be solved through increased government involvement in the form of more spending, lowering interest rates through an increase in the money supply, and cutting taxes. This concept is generally known as deficit spending, and Keynes believed it was the key to kickstarting the economy once again, which could help to end the Great Depression. These ideas would look very familiar to the actions taken by U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in what became known as the New Deal. He worked to secure the banking industry from collapsing once again under the weight of another panic. He invested in government public works projects that put more Americans to work. He helped provide funds to farmers and provided Social Security for older citizens. This began to help ease unemployment, but fears still existed about mounting government deficits and the U.S. economy continued to lag until World War II ultimately ended the Great Depression. More on that later, obviously. So that's all I wanted to kind of say for this complicating the narrative part. Like I said, though, the rest of this episode, you can consider 
in part an outgrowth of the Great Depression. So as you hear these key concepts kind of revealed to you, always keep them into that larger contextual picture of the Great Depression. For the first part of our key concept connections, we're going to talk about the challenges to the liberal order that emerged during this interwar period. And that is going to kind of focus on communism, fascism, and Nazism. So if we step back to a decade prior to the outset of the Great Depression, we'd find ourselves in 1919, in the middle of the Russian Civil War being fought between the Bolsheviks, or the Reds, who had seized power from the provisional government in 1917, and the Mensheviks, also known as the Whites, who were an alliance of different groups brought together in their common opposition to Bolshevism. By 1918, the Bolsheviks had murdered former Tsar Nicholas II and his entire family in an effort to prevent the Romanovs from ever seizing the throne again. It was also during the Civil War where the Reds had begun their plan of economic reform known as war communism, where surplus grain produced by the peasantry was confiscated by the army to be distributed to support the war effort. The Bolsheviks also nationalized control of banking, industry, and large land holdings. The confiscation of grain led to underproduction, or peasants just flat out hiding their grain, and this ultimately resulted in widespread famine. Industrial output also followed the agricultural collapse. However, by 1920, the Whites, in spite of the international support they had been given from Britain, France, and the United States, among others, were defeated, and the Bolsheviks could now set about reforming their new Soviet Union. After the war, Lenin backtracked on war communism and set about on a new economic policy that he creatively titled the New Economic Policy. Major industries and banks remained under state control, but small businesses were able to operate under more private ownership in the market, and peasants were now able to sell surplus grain on the open market. With some of their incentive returning, Agricultural output grew and the economy began to get back on track. However, Lenin died in 1924, leading to a power struggle between two potential successors, Leon Trotsky, the former head of the Red Army, and the general secretary of the Communist Party, Joseph Stalin. It was Stalin and his belief in keeping focus on growing the communist state in the Soviet Union, as opposed to helping foster international revolution, that eventually won out. He set about transforming the economy by doing away with the NEP and began to establish his first five-year plan for the Soviet economy. The first five-year plan was intended to dramatically thrust the Soviet Union out of the agricultural era and into the industrial era. Production targets were set for coal, oil, and steel, among other industrial necessities, thus de-emphasizing the production of consumer goods. The plan began in 1929, amidst the beginnings of the Great Depression. Keeping this in mind, it makes it all the more impressive to note the initial success of this plan in regards to heavy industry. On the other hand, Russia's agricultural policies during the first five-year plan was disastrous. All privately owned land was nationalized and turned over to the process of collectivization, where land was combined and worked together by a collective organization of peasants. Agricultural machinery could thus be distributed more easily between collectives and the theory went that the cooperation of the peasants would help to grow agricultural productivity, which could thus feed Russian society as a whole. However, this plan was not to be realized, as many peasants resented losing their privately owned land to collectivization, and instead they destroyed their lands and their livestock. 
villagers who resisted were often shot, and those who didn't want to fight just packed up and moved to cities in search of industrial work. Collectivization proved to be a disaster and resulted in man-made famine in Ukraine due to Stalin's decision to punish Ukrainians for failure to cooperate with his policies. As the Soviet brand of socialism was developing and refining its practices in Eastern Europe, Western Europe began to witness the emergence of another ideology that proved to challenge the liberal order, fascism. This movement developed out of the rejecting of both the liberalism that stemmed from the victorious powers of World War I and the socialist-communist path that had been forged by the Soviet Union. This movement originated in Italy and would come to appear notably in Spain and Germany as well. It was defined by extremist nationalism, a militarization of the state, dedication to a powerful leader, and a spirit of ethnocentrism, which is the belief in the superiority of one's own ethnicity and judging all others based on one's own values. Fascism grew in Italy due to the frustration with their political leaders, the dissatisfaction that came from the Treaty of Versailles, because, I'm not sure if you know, the Italians were not really granted much of the territory that they had desired. And there's economic instability in Italy that led to middle-class fears of socialist revolution. Benito Mussolini, a former socialist, war veteran, and now the founder and head of Italy's fascist party, began to elect leadership to the government. His party members forced the government's hand by staging a march on Rome to take power by force if necessary. However, this forced the hand of Italy's king, who was not willing to use the military. Instead, he asked for Mussolini to become his prime minister. Soon enough, Mussolini manipulated the laws to establish himself as the totalitarian leader of Italy by eliminating other political parties and removing free speech. One of the hallmark features of his fascist state was known as corporatism. The idea behind corporatism was to do away with labor unions and strikes by creating a system where the workers, business owners, and government officials all operated separately and of their own free will, but all working toward the common goal of supporting the state. There was meant to be a state council that would handle the issues of workers, but ultimately, the state was free to impose its will on all sectors of society. Italy's fortunes were able to improve thanks to the plan to expand its empire. During the so-called initial scramble for Africa, the Italians had come to take control of Libya and part of modern-day Somalia. However, they failed to take Abyssinia, which we know today as Ethiopia, losing in a war for the territory. Mussolini desired to take Abyssinia for the Italians, and he succeeded in 1936. But in doing so, he violated agreements set out by the League of Nations. The order set about by the post-war treaties failed in their first test, and the challenges would only grow larger from here. Germany had faced much turbulence since they reluctantly agreed to the humiliating terms of the Treaty of Versailles. The new democratic Weimar Republic of Germany struggled with the enormous debts brought on by reparation payments, an army that was forced to be reduced to 100,000, and the loss of its overseas territories as well as some of the land it had controlled on the European continent. Germany had attempted to solve its economic struggles by printing money in the mid-1920s, but this led to hyperinflation, with the value of basic goods like bread that once cost a quarter of a Reichsmark in 1918. By the height of hyperinflation, this was costing 80 billion Reichsmarks in November 1923. So individual savings were wiped out within an instant. 
And it was during this same year of 1923 when Adolf Hitler and the National Socialist German Workers' Party, what we call the Nazis, took their first unsuccessful step to power by starting an attempted overthrow of the government in a Munich beer hall. The plan failed miserably and Hitler was jailed for nine months. And it was during this time where he put his ideas to paper in the book that became known as Mein Kampf, meaning My Struggle. Hitler learned his lesson from his first mistake. His second attempt to take power was going to be by using the democratic process to his advantage, only to corrupt and destroy it in the end. The events that we've covered of 1929 that prompted a global Great Depression ended up working in favor of the Nazi party. Germany's economic troubles, much like Italy's, led to fears across various sectors of society of a communist plot to overthrow the German government. People became more critical of the Weimar government, which became increasingly associated with one disaster after another since its founding after the First World War. The Nazis began to increase their appeal because they promised to reject the Versailles Treaty, to set Germany on a path toward recapturing its former glory, and they had a tidy explanation in what caused their problems. They believed it was a Jewish conspiracy that was set against the German nation. By 1932, the Nazis became the largest party in German parliament, and behind them, it was the Social Democrats and then the Communist Party. German conservatives were concerned with Hitler's ideas, but they believed they could keep him under the control. So in 1933, President Hindenburg offered Hitler the position of chancellor in the German government. The Nazis then began to play off of German fears of communism, increased thanks to the fire that occurred in the German parliament building known as the Reichstag and called for a plan that would allow Hitler to outlaw all other political parties and allow him to rule independently of the Constitution. Once he was granted this ability, the doors swung open to whatever plans Hitler had in mind. The Nazis worked together with business owners to help remilitarize the state, and they also abolished all trade unions. By 1935, he had taken control of the police and purged the government of anyone against his plans. They began their racially driven agenda by urging mothers to bear more children, sterilizing those people they deemed unfit to bear children, and even killing those who were handicapped and declared to be useless in the eyes of the Nazis. In 1935, they passed the Nuremberg Laws, which revoked German citizenship for Jews, forbade Jewish and non-Jewish marriage, and generally began to marginalize Jews from society. In November 1938, the Night of Broken Glass, otherwise known as Kristallnacht, occurred, which was the state-directed targeting of German Jews in response to the murder of a German official by a Jewish person. Synagogues throughout Germany were destroyed, Jews were killed, sent to concentration camps, and saw their homes and businesses destroyed. Sadly enough, the turbulence in Germany and Europe was only beginning at this point. So we see this path of extremism starting to emerge in Europe. Now what we'll do is we'll take a step back and we're going to kind of look at Asia briefly, followed by Africa, and then Latin America. So in the aftermath of the Treaty of Versailles, an air of disappointment and frustration had drifted over Asia, as many people still under the control of colonial powers failed to see their dreams of self-determination realized. China, India, and Japan all dealt with instability during the interwar years as well, but their issues stemmed from different causes. Let's take some time to see what happened in these places from the turn of the century through the 1930s. India had thrown its full support behind the British in their efforts to fight in the First World War, only to realize any hope of self-rule to be crushed by the Treaty of Versailles. The Indian National Congress and its counterpart, the Muslim League of India, 
had begun to advocate for full independence from the British Empire. Tensions were developing as the Muslim League feared for its people were India to achieve independence only to be governed by the Hindu majority. Mohandas Gandhi came to be the voice of India's movement to achieve independence. His plan was to follow a path of nonviolence known as ahimsa and something that is best described in English as truth force, which he called satyagraha. Satyagraha was basically civil disobedience, or a plan to refuse to follow unjust British laws and suffer whatever punishment that resulted from this refusal. Gandhi's belief was that the oppressor would begin to question their policies when they saw masses of people refuse to follow them on the grounds of injustice. One of Gandhi's first plans after the war was to call for a policy of non-cooperation that was defined by boycotting British goods, boycotting British elections, their courts, withdrawing Indian children from British schools, and several other actions. One of his most famous acts was part of the civil disobedience campaign of 1930 when he marched to the sea on what became known as the Salt March. It had become illegal for Indians to make their own salt. So what did Gandhi do? He walked 240 miles over a course of 24 days to arrive at the Arabian Sea, where he proceeded to make salt, only to be arrested and make the newspapers all over the world. Now the globe could see how ridiculous British policies in India were. India was beginning to realize a path toward independence beginning in the late 1930s, but signs of problems to come were also starting to emerge. Muslims led by Muhammad Ali Jinnah had begun to advocate for two separate countries to be established if independence were to be realized, one for Hindus and one for Muslims. Muslims had feared being dominated by the Hindu majority, and these tensions were increased by the economic destruction that came to India as a result of the Great Depression, which caused significant unemployment, diminishing profits as the value of cash crops plummeted, and Muslim tenant farmers struggled to pay debts to their often Hindu landlords. It would not be until after World War II when this two-state option became a reality. We will revisit to see what impact this was to have on India. China of the early 1920s had been dealing with instability and difficulties for nearly a century by that point in time. The Opium Wars had resulted in unequal treaties signed with Western powers which were still valid during this time. The Taiping and Boxer Rebellions had both been failures in their own respective ways, and the Qing Dynasty had been overthrown in 1911. It was replaced by a republic led by Dr. Sun Yat-sen. However, his ineffectual leadership and the power of former military generals led to China devolving into a state of warlordism in the early part of the 20th century. As a result of the Treaty of Versailles, the Japanese had been granted control of the former German sphere of influence on the Shandong Peninsula in China. This led to widespread demonstrations throughout China in what became known as the May 4th Movement. The Chinese had become largely disillusioned with Western liberal democracy and were seeking out alternative paths to modernizing their nation. In 1921, the Communist Party was established, and one of its early members, Mao Zedong, would come to mount a challenge to the Nationalist Party with his call for communist revolution to be led by the peasantry, as opposed to an industrial working class like we had seen in Russia. Though at first, the Nationalist Party of China, known as the Kuomintang, or the KMT, had allied with the Chinese Communist Party, by 1927, the leader of the KMT, Chiang Kai-shek, had organized and carried out a plan where he tried to wipe out the Communist Party 
that he feared would undermine his power to consolidate rule over China. The communists fled for their lives in that same year, while the KMT declared themselves to be the official government of China. The KMT had several problems on their hands. One, the communist threat that still loomed because they fled to southeastern China to regroup. Second, the fact that warlords still held sway in China. And finally, the fact that the Japanese had invaded Manchuria in 1931, and the threat was possible for them to make further inroads into China. Chiang had decided to prioritize wiping out the communist threat, but the communists fled from southeast China on a journey that became known in Chinese legend as the Long March. They finally made it to safety in northwestern China after having traveled for over 6,000 miles. Along the way, they had worked with the peasantry of China and their empowering of the peasantry, the message of communist revolution, and calls for the radical redistribution of wealth had appealed to these people. Many had decided to join the communist ranks along the way. And so the Japanese had entered the post-war era as the strongest Asian nation and one of the larger military powers of the world. Japan's navy was growing at such a rapid rate that the Washington Naval Conference decided to place a limit on the pace of its growth. Their economy had benefited from the First World War, selling goods for the Allied effort and confiscating former German colonies throughout the Pacific. The Great Depression hit hard and resulted in a steep decline in manufacturing, layoffs, and emerging problems in trade. People began to call for government reforms like expanding the rights to vote and improvements for the rights of workers. However, conservatives blocked these efforts, and far-right nationalists instead began to call for a more traditional, as in valuing Japanese Confucian and Shinto beliefs, militaristic, self-reliant society that would expand its empire in order to secure the raw materials it needed. These ideas became popular as the military saw itself carrying on the traditions of Japanese society. The military had set its sights on Manchuria just as the KMT was beginning to shore up control of China. The Japanese government had not approved of this action, which was predicated upon a Japanese plan to blow up their own railroad in Manchuria, blame it on the Chinese, and use it as a pretext to invade Manchuria. The League of Nations also did not approve, and they ordered the Japanese to leave the region. However, the Japanese military took control of Manchuria and essentially added it to their empire and made the decision to leave the League of Nations in 1933. So moving on to Africa during this time period. After the First World War, the colonies of Africa continued to be dominated by European imperialist powers. New networks of roads, railroads, and telegraph lines helped to facilitate communication and goods throughout the continent as cash crop farming expanded to levels not seen before. Peanuts, palm oil, and cocoa were coming out of West Africa, while Central Africa was still supplying rubber, and white settlers were sure to get the best farmlands in the settler colonies of South Africa and Kenya. Africans were forced into labor at times and paid taxes that maintained these institutions, keeping them at an enormous disadvantage. From these continuing inequities grew new African nationalist movements. Africans living in the Americas and Caribbean began to embrace an identity of Pan-Africanism, which called for Africa to be united into a single nation-state. Intellectuals like W.E.B. Du Bois in America supported this, and Marcus Garvey in Jamaica called for a Back to Africa movement, which requested exactly what it called itself, a movement back to Africa. Meanwhile, in French West Africa, the Negritude movement was forming, which emphasized the pride in blackness and a rejection of colonialism. 
Lastly, looking at Latin America, where its nations had achieved independence in the last unit that we studied. However, what we see now is a continual struggle to find solid ground at the conclusion of the First World War due to continued foreign interference and the presence of Caudillo-styled rulers. The last we had seen of Mexico was a successful independence movement that resulted in moderate reforms but little advancement made for Mexican peasants. Porfirio Diaz had been ruling Mexico since the late 19th century, and he had allowed for the country's raw materials to fall under the control of American businesses. Revolution broke out in Mexico once Diaz had arrested his opponent, Francisco Madero, in 1910. Madero and his military commander, Pancho Villa, drove Diaz out of power, and Madero claimed power by 1911, but he would only deliver a moderate level of reform, and not nearly enough of what Mexico's peasantry demanded. Emiliano Zapata and Pancho Villa began to reflect their peasant roots, and Zapata soon began efforts to redistribute land independently of the government. Zapata was eventually killed by the military in 1919, while Pancho Villa was assassinated in 1923. Soon enough, the government resumed control and began to carry out the plans set forth by the Constitution of 1917, which had called for land redistribution, universal suffrage, emphasized a secular society, championed its Indian past, and sought to restrict foreign ownership of resources. Most of these desires were not achieved, but Mexican leader Lorenzo Cardenas was able to remove foreign oil companies and the state took control of the oil industry. Elsewhere, the United States had also been involving itself in the affairs of other Latin American countries like Haiti, the Dominican Republic, and Nicaragua. Dollar diplomacy had led to American investment in the region and eventually American military presence in the region when those investments came under threat. In the 1920s, a civil war had broken out in Nicaragua, and the U.S. Marines stepped in to protect American business interests, especially involved in banana production. The Marines remained for several years, and eventually armed opposition to the American presence, led by Augusto Sandino, fought against forces trained by the Americans, led by a brutal commander. Sandino was eventually killed by Nicaraguan forces, and that commander... Anastasio Somoza Garcia eventually became president of Nicaragua. He allied with the United States and soon began to build himself as a wealthy ruler of a family that would rule Nicaragua for the next several decades. The Great Depression forced the hand of many Latin American nations because their economies had been dependent on foreign investment and profits from the exporting of agricultural products, and both of these things had fallen by the wayside. Brazil's coffee industry was hit hard by the Depression, and it forced President Getulio Vargas to forge a new path of governing. In 1937, he established a new constitution that established an authoritarian, somewhat fascist state, emphasizing nationalism and limiting immigration. He worked to industrialize Brazil through developing their iron and steel industries and set about on a path of corporatism where the state mediated disputes between labor and industry. Workers were also cared for thanks to new social welfare programs that provided a minimum wage, unemployment funds, and retirement benefits. The document in focus today is going to be a work of art, which I understand is kind of problematic for a podcast, but it's a really interesting one that I don't think I'd be able to cover elsewhere, so I'm using this as my opportunity to do so. And it is a painting by the artist Diego Rivera 
and it's called imperialism. So you've read a bit about Diego Rivera from your textbook, and you've learned that he was a believer in Marxism, and he was also a believer in the idea that art should be created for the masses to enjoy. What you didn't read was that he had been commissioned to create murals in the middle of Rockefeller Center in New York City. Rivera accepted the work and decided to include Vladimir Lenin in one of his works, and this of course outraged the capitalist patrons of Rivera. His work was taken down and destroyed. This inspired him to create a book and series of paintings known as Portrait of America. One of the paintings he created in this series was called Imperialism, and it featured massive military guns pointing out of the New York Stock Exchange, facing what seemed to be people of color, of African and Latin American descent. There are workers laboriously trudging bananas off to the United Fruit Company, while Standard Oil derricks fall in behind. In the top right-hand corner, you see Augusto Sandino, the man who fought against American involvement in Nicaragua, look on in despair. Rivera's anger is easily obvious here, and his frustration with American policy is made clear in this piece, and the context of his mural at Rockefeller Center being destroyed is essential to knowing why he went to such lengths to criticize American practices. Remember, the Rockefellers owned Standard Oil. I will be sure to post an image in the blog for you to look at so that you can actually understand what I was describing here. Um, And just generally speaking, you should look into Rivera's murals because there's just so much history that is depicted in the murals and not even just history from the time period in which he was alive, just Latin American history as a whole. It's actually maybe a good way to review Latin American history for uh, the AP exam, which is not that far away, folks. Today's recommendation is a very short video from the BBC that contextualizes and analyzes Pablo Picasso's painting called Guernica. You read about the Spanish Civil War a bit in your book, which was a conflict between the conservative nationalists of Spain and the Loyalist Republicans. You also learned about the events perpetrated by the Nazis and fascist Italian allies of Francisco Franco, the nationalist general, which was the bombing of Guernica. This marked one of the first times in history that a civilian population was targeted by aerial bombs. Please give it a look. It's about three minutes long, and it breaks the painting down in a really informative and really straightforward way. That is going to be it for today's episode. We've got three left here before we hit the end of the year. So I hope you are emotionally prepared for the finale because I know I'm not. Off to get some rest, folks, to deal with that day when it comes. Till then, take care, everyone.